Thank you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning. One of my favorite things to get uh, is a handwritten thank you note from someone else. There's something about somebody taking the time in this age of electronic communication, uh, when somebody takes the time to put a handwritten note in the mail and to encourage me, it's a really huge blessing to me. In fact, I still have some of the handwritten thank you notes some of you as members of this church have written me over the years, encouraging me about a message I've shared or something going on in the church. Uh, the book of Philippians is a handwritten thank you note the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Uh, the church at Philippi had uh, sent Paul a monetary gift, a financial gift, and he wanted to thank them for that gift. And so what's going to be special as we work through the book of Philippians this fall is we're going to see what real gratitude looks like and maybe more importantly how we cultivate that in our lives. If there was a word I would not use to describe American culture today, it would be thankful. <laughs> if I was rather to use a word that I would use to describe American culture today, it would be entitled. We are entitled people living in an entitled world. It's very easy to lose and lose sight of what real gratitude is supposed to be in our lives, especially for those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So even though I believe gratitude is very elusive to many of us in our culture today, I believe the book of Philippians has something to say to us about what gratitude is and how we can cultivate it in our lives. Would you please stand with me to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word in Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 11. Philippians 1, 1 through 11, we read these words. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all the saints who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and my defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Would you please pray with me, church? God, right now I pray that you would remove distraction, Lord, that you would not let our minds go to what we have to do next, today or the rest of this week. But Lord, would you help us be fully present in these moments? God, would you use your word, empowered by your spirit, to speak to every heart here? 
And Lord, as we hear from you today, would you help us not just be hearers of your word, but would you help us be doers as well? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The book of Philippians starts with Paul's traditional greeting as he welcomes the church at Philippi. He addresses the leadership there because presumably they've been the ones who've organized the gift that he received from this church. And after introducing himself and greeting them, he identifies uh, a thanks. He expresses his gratitude to the church. And he also expresses this with joy. I want you to notice gratitude and joy and how they show up in verses 3 and 4. Look back at your Bibles for these two ideas. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. The two ideas that I think we need to focus on in these two verses here are gratitude and joy. Gratitude is a recognition of someone else's contribution. It's when we take the time to recognize the way others have helped or encouraged us in some way. In a biblical sense, gratitude is recognizing the blessings that God has bestowed upon us. A thankful person is a person who can quickly identify the ways God has blessed and is blessing us as a people. But he also uses the word joy. He says that the result of his thanks is that his prayer is being made with joy. Joy, biblically speaking, means living in light of victory. It means that I'm living in light of the victory that I have in Christ, if I know him. There's an exuberance or a a pleasure-filled kind of zeal to someone's life that's joyful. So that if they were a part of a team that wins this great victory, right? If you're on a team that wins, there's kind of a a joy, a a pleasure, and a zeal, and a happiness that kind of wells up in your life. This is the picture that Paul's painting here. He's praying with joy about what's happening at the church at Philippi. Now, here's why that's important. I believe in this passage we're seeing a connection between gratitude and joy. Gratitude Thankfulness for what God has blessed us with, and this passage, I believe, is the fuel for joy in our lives. Said in the reverse, if I find joy elusive in my life, it's probably because there's a lack of gratitude and thankfulness in my heart. A thankless person is a joyless person. And this is hard for us because we're conditioned to think like consumers. We're conditioned to think that we deserve things. So if you turn on the television, if you listen to the radio, if you get on Facebook or on the internet, you're immediately bombarded with messaging that says, you should have, you deserve, you should get these things. The problem with a consumeristic kind of identity that's welled up within most Americans is that it creates an insatiable desire for more and more and more. 
This is exactly antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ that says Jesus is enough. The consumeristic mentality that we see in our culture comes directly in opposition with a biblical worldview that says Jesus is really all that I need. I was watching a movie that just came out this past year called The Founder. It's about the founding of McDonald's and the story of Ray Kroc as he founded this organization. I'd encourage all of you to watch it because it's a great uh, story about the dangers of lust for power and greed. There's a, a key moment in the movie where Ray Kroc's wife looks at him and says, Ray, when is enough going to be enough for you? When is enough going to be enough for you? And Ray Kroc, without missing a beat played by Michael Keaton, says, eh, probably never. Probably never. And while some of us may look at that movie scene and say, wow, what, what ambition, what drive and zeal to achieve and to do more, as followers of Christ, we look at that and we grieve. Enough is never going to be enough. You mean that you're never going to be satisfied in this life? There's nothing that could happen to you that could fill the hole that you have in your heart created by God? What we're saying as followers of Jesus and what Paul is saying is that gratitude and joy are meant to come together in this beautiful connection in which we recognize a thankful person is someone who recognizes the victory they have in Jesus and is thus a joyful person. So the question is, how do we cultivate this kind of joy in our lives? How do we cultivate this kind of thankful mindset in us? Look at verse 5 in your Bibles. Paul says he's thankful, look at verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says he's thankful because the Philippian church has supported him not just now with this financial gift, but they've been supporting him for some time. That they're, as it were, locked arm in arm with one another around the cause of getting the gospel to the world. You see, what this is describing is that a church is meant to be a partnership of people coming together around the common purpose of getting the gospel to the world. Our role and our calling as a body of believers is to come together around one goal with one aim to see this community and the world know Jesus Christ. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his books, Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings books, wrote the first book called The Fellowship of the Ring uh, because it's around this nine group of characters that have a common purpose. In the Lord of the Rings world, there is a ring that symbolizes and embodies evil and destruction. And these nine heroes band together for one singular purpose, to see the ring destroyed. To take the ring back to where it was made and to destroy it. And so they're called the Fellowship of the Ring because they're a group of people gathered and united together around one singular goal. Brothers and sisters, what the passage before us is saying is that the church, 
This partnership in the gospel Paul talks about here is also meant to be a fellowship, but a fellowship in the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we're seeking with one aim and one singular purpose to see people come to know Christ. And here's why this is so crucial for you and for me. I believe one of the remedies to a thankless person is gratitude and this gospel partnership. And I'll say it this way. Gospel partnership is what helps us grow gratitude in our lives. One of the mechanisms that Christ puts in place is His church, this partnership, where if properly executed, gives us a reminder, builds some rhythms and patterns into our lives that help us grow in gratitude and grace, and as a result, grow in our joy. So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you three dimensions of a gospel partnership we see in this passage. I want to show you three ways gospel partnership with one another helps keep us thankful, grateful people, and as a result, joyful. Number one, this passage shows us that gospel partnership encourages authentic community. It shows us, number one, that gospel partnership encourages authentic community. Look in your Bibles at verse 7 and verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul again emphasizes the partnership that we have in the gospel that the Philippians had with him. And he emphasizes the fact that they're connected to Paul even while he's in prison. You see, Paul is writing the book of Philippians, this letter from jail. And he's saying, I'm so thankful that you're standing with me while I'm in prison, but also as I stand before rulers of synagogues and kings to defend and confirm what Jesus has done for us. Paul says, thank you for connecting with me that way. But then he makes an interesting statement in verse 8. I want you to look at it. He says, I yearn for you because of this connection with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says that he longs to be with the Philippians. His connection and love for them is so deep that he sees Jesus' love for us as a model for how he's loving the Philippians. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's giving us a vision of the way Christian community is supposed to function. We are supposed to love one another the way Christ loves us. We're to have a deep, abiding affection for one another, a friendship that includes even a vulnerability and openness that's built around the love that Jesus has for us. One of the reasons I think this is so important is because I think as a culture— We're in danger of losing the middle ground between an acquaintance and romantic sexual involvement. I think as a culture, we're missing the vision for biblical, healthy, Christ-honoring friendship. 
The reason for that is pretty simple. From 1970 all the way to the present, our culture has predicated most of what it believes about relationships on the idea that sex is a fundamental human right. So if you go all the way back to 1973 in the Roe v. Wade decision, in which nine unelected officials legalized abortion in all 50 states. Much of the argumentation around the legalization of abortion in our country was that sex is a fundamental human right. If a, if a man can have sex and walk away from that experience commitment-free, we've also got to give women that option as well. That's really what drove the movement to legalize abortion in our country. We never once considered the fact that maybe sex shouldn't happen outside of marriage. It was just assumed that it was going to happen. And as a result of that, what's getting baked into many of our views of relationships is that sex is this kind of highest peak kind of place of intimacy and connection. Fast forward all the way to 2015 in the Obergefell decision in which nine unelected Supreme Court justices legalized same-sex marriage in our country. It was predicated on the idea that if you can't fully actualize yourself as a person through your sexual preference, you're not going to be happy. The lie that's being told in our culture today is that sexual intimacy and sexual expression is the highest form of relational connection. And this is absolutely antithetical to what the Bible teaches about relationships. The Bible does not teach that sexual intimacy is this peak of experience relationally. It carves out a space between the, the position of acquaintance, that's, hello, how you doing in the hallway? And it's, it carves out a space between romantic sexual involvement that includes deep, close friendships. Parents, one of the reasons this is so important is we need to help our children understand it is good and right for them to have close friendships with the same sex. It's important for our children to understand if they like hanging out with guys and they have close, deep, abiding friendships and relationships with other boys, that doesn't mean they're gay. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with them or maladjusted. But what's happening, even at a very young level, is we're training our children to think, well, if I'm too close to someone, there's no space for this friendship until it bleeds over into something physically and sexually intimate. One of the examples we see in the Bible of this kind of friendship I'm describing is the relationship between David and Jonathan. Um, David was a character from the Old Testament. He was ordained to be king. And when David was ordained to be king, there was one problem. There was already a king <laughs> when David was anointed. But by God's providence and his grace, uh, God gave David Saul's son as one of his closest friends, Jonathan. In fact, the Bible describes David and Jonathan's relationship as being so close that their souls were knit together. In fact, when, when Jonathan dies, David goes so far as to say that Jonathan's friendship has meant more to him than even sexual intimacy with the women in his life, the wives that he had. And this has led modern-day commentators to assume, wrongly, that David and Jonathan were homosexuals. They were sexually engaged in some kind of relationship. What I would just say to you about that is that is merely a 21st century reading of biblical healthy friendship. There is a place for deep, affectionate friendship.
friendship that's including this kind of vulnerability with one another that does not include sexual intimacy. Church, what we have to be doing is reclaiming the ability for two guys to say to one another, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ and not be weirded out by it. Because some of you, your, your hair's sitting up a little bit. I can see some of the guys in the very back there. I don't know if I'd feel comfortable saying, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. We just automatically assume that's got to be sexual. We have to reclaim a vision for healthy, biblical, God-honoring friendship. Why? Because it's through these friendships that God reminds us of His affection for us. Through experiencing healthy, same-sex relationships, and I'm talking about two guys and two girls having deep friendships that are not sexual, through those kinds of relationships, Christ reminds us of his affections for us. We're refreshed by people in our lives. When we're vulnerable and open and honest about our brokenness with a friend, and they are in turn vulnerable with us, it breeds in us a reminder of our brokenness and our need for Jesus. Do you have those kinds of friends in your life? Do you have those kinds of deep, abiding, affectionate open, vulnerable friendships where people know your greatest struggles, your greatest fears, and they love you in spite of those. Church, we've got to reclaim the idea that this kind of gospel partnership that we're to engage in as a body should include an ability to look at people and say, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Number two, this gospel partnership also includes challenging us to holiness. Challenging us to holiness. Verses 9 through 11, Paul gives us a prayer. And in this prayer, I want you to notice the progression from the love and affection we have for God to the knowledge and understanding we have about God to holy and righteous living. Notice this connection that Paul prays over these people. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, notice this life change, you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays that their love would grow, that their discernment and understanding would grow, and as a result, that their lives would be changed. You see, what Paul's doing is he's trying to spur on the Philippians to holiness, to obedience to Christ, to their lives being changed by the gospel. This is a model for you and I about what gospel partnerships meant to look like. It should look like the types of relationships in which we are spurring one another on to holiness. So imagine for a moment that you decide to start eating healthy. Some of you are laughing. You shouldn't laugh. It's a good vision. You decide to eat healthy. You decide to start exercising, and you lay out this plan. Diet, exercise, all of these things. And you begin to put your plan together, and you begin to implement your plan. If you're really going to stay the course 
with healthy eating and exercise. One of the best things you can do is find someone to do that with you, right? It's to find a workout buddy. It's to find somebody who's going to eat healthy along with you so that by their example and by their encouragement through their words, you guys are holding one another accountable. I promise you, if you know that somebody's going to be waiting to meet you at 6.30 in the morning, yes, people are awake at 6.30, 6.30 in the morning at the gym, you're more likely to go. If we need that in the physical world in terms of health, how much more do we need that when it comes to spiritual health? We need people who are going to come alongside us and spur us on. Here's why that's so important. We need people who are going to remind us that Jesus is better than what sin has to offer us. We need people who are going to remind us that what Christ gives me is far greater than anything sin could ever offer me. We need to be clear. Sin does offer us pleasure. Sin offers us momentary delight and happiness. But what we all know is sin ultimately, while it offers us a form of pleasure, it's a form of pleasure that erodes and decays and destroys. To use a health analogy again, sin is like fast food and junk food. It tastes good in the moment. It, it, it alleviates my hunger quickly. But we all know that if that's all you eat, and that's all your body takes in, it's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you from the inside out. Sin is no different. We need people in our lives through their example and through their words that are saying, but don't go after that. Jesus is better. Don't run after that pleasure that you think is going to make you happy. Trust that what Christ has given you is enough. Parents, one of the things we have to be doing is we're training the next generation is we have to quit painting this false dichotomy that sin offers me happiness and pleasure, and Jesus is kind of boring and no fun. That's not the Bible. The Bible is sin offers me pleasure, but then it hurts me. The Bible is Jesus offers me pleasure that's better than what sin offers me. It's not that Jesus is boring and sin is fun. It's that Jesus is far better than anything sin could ever give me. One of the examples, again, that comes to my mind is the life of David. I think it's part because we're reading through First and Second Samuel this year, if you're reading through the Bible with us. And there's a critically dangerous and horrible moment in David's life in which he abuses his power, sleeps with another man's wife, and has that man killed. In fact, it's this morning, if you're reading through the Bible with us, it's Second Samuel chapter 11. And when David took Bathsheba into his bed and slept with her, and when David did all the things he did to have Uriah killed, what we would hope would have happened if we could rewind it is that David would have someone in his life going, hey, wait a minute, stop. You're going the wrong way. Look, look at what God's given you over here. Why are you running after this sin when God's given you so much? But David didn't have anybody there to help him. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us why. 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells us, verse 1, that in the spring, when the kings went out to battle, David stayed 
behind. And rather than David being with his troops, rather than David being on the ground there with his generals who would have been the trusted advisors who would have said to him, David, you're going the wrong way. Stop, don't do this. David finds himself isolated and vulnerable, easy to be picked off by the enemy. I wonder if there's some of us that would have to acknowledge that we're isolated. We don't have voices in our lives calling us to be careful about the dangers of sin. We don't have voices in our lives who are calling us to behold the wonder and splendor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church family, we need people in our lives that through their example and through their words are going to say, Jesus is better. These first two points that I've made here about authentic community, affections for one another, and challenging to holiness, I want to give you just a practical step of application you could take in your life. One of the things we have done here at Riverview is invested a significant, significant amount of energy and resource in this ministry called Life Groups. Life groups are small group Bible studies that meet throughout this campus on Sunday morning, and it's a place where you can come and connect with other believers. We believe it's so essential in this day of electronic communication, in this day of pulling into your garage and closing it and never interacting with your neighbors. We believe it's essential that believers have a space in their lives to connect with other people. Some of you this morning who are saying, I don't have that kind of friendship. I don't have that kind of encouragement spurring me on to holiness. One of the first steps you may need to take is to plug into one of our life groups here at Riverview to get the help you need to follow Jesus as a believer. Church, we need to be a place that creates this space to develop relationships that spur one another on to holy and righteous living. Thirdly and finally, we also see this passage tells us that a church, a gospel partnership, helps gratitude grow in us by exalting Jesus Christ. A church is a place that should be exalting Christ, and that as we exalt Christ, we encourage one another in gratitude and grace. Look in verse 6 in your Bibles. The Bible says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Bible here talks about Jesus beginning a work in us. That's when we first come to know him, and he saves us from our sins. But it also talks about the day of Jesus Christ. That's his return when he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And what this passage says is what happens between the beginning and the end is that Jesus sustains us and keeps us between these two points. You see, church, what he's saying is that Jesus is not just our Savior. He's saying that Jesus is our sustainer. He's the one who keeps us and holds us and brings to completion what he starts. The reason this is important for you and me as a church, as church, we are meant to be a place that is not exalting in our ability in me as a pastor, our buildings, our budgets, our ministries. What we're meant to be as a church is a group of people that are saying, we're exalting and lifting up Jesus 
because he's the only thing holding and keeping us until his return. We're to be a place that's serious about making it clear that we believe Christ is the only one who's keeping us and holding us. When we do that, when we as a church exalt Christ, it grows in us a gratitude and humility because we know Jesus and Jesus alone saves and sustains. During World War II, we know from history that the Nazis were merciless in their pursuit and destruction of the Jewish people. We know that they rounded up millions and millions of Jews, took them to concentration camps, and mercilessly killed these people. But in Nazi-controlled territory during World War II, did you know that there were many people who resisted? There were a number of people who did what they could to resist what was happening. And some of them hid Jews, and some of them protected resistance fighters. One such lady was a lady named Corey Tin Boom. How many of you have ever heard of Corey Tin Boom? Okay, many of you have. Corey Tin Boom was a Dutch watchmaker's daughter who decided with her family that they would begin to protect and hide Jews. In fact, they became so uh, diligent in their protection and hiding of Jews that they actually had an engineer come into their home to build a compartment or a spot in their house where they could hide Jews. This became known as The Hiding Place, and it was actually a book that was written about it and movies that had been made. I'd highly commend those resources to you. They hid scores and scores and scores of people from Nazi German soldiers. In fact, they were so good at hiding Jews that even when Cory Tim Boom and her family was arrested by the Nazis. For two days, the Germans sat up and took shop, uh, guarded Corrie ten Boom's family's home, and they couldn't find the Jews that were hiding in that compartment. It was that well concealed. Imagine what it would be like to get those people together that Corrie ten Boom had hid and saved and rescued. Can you imagine what their conversation would be like if they all got together? I'm sure they would all recognize their common connection was that they'd been saved and protected by this hiding place. They would probably share stories of how they were protected and, and delivered from danger by Corey Timbu and her family. There would also probably be kind of a, a thankfulness and a gratitude that they would show to Corey Timbu and her family. In fact, Corey Timbu has been recognized internationally all over the world for her work. The nation of Israel, when it was formed, formally identified Cory Tim Boom as one of the Gentiles that helped the Jewish people in those horrible years. But that kind of fellowship, that kind of gratitude and joy is what a church should look like. Because while you and I may not have been delivered from Nazi German soldiers who were trying to kill us, we have been delivered from something far worse we have been delivered from the danger and death and deception of our sin. And our deliverance has not come at a small cost, church. The deliverance that you and I enjoy has come because Jesus Christ offered his life as a sacrifice for us. And when Jesus offers his life in our place, he makes it possible for us to enter God's hiding place in the protection and care of his capable hand. So when verse 6 says, 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We exalt and glory in what Jesus has done for us because he alone has saved us from our sin. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, our appeal to you would be to know this Jesus who can begin a good work in you. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, we want you to understand that your problem is real. We've all lied, stolen, had hatred and lust in our hearts. All of us, without exception, have disobeyed God's righteous requirements. And what the Bible says is the reason we do those things is because our hearts are desperately wicked in worshiping ourselves. The Bible also says that there's a penalty that we should earn because of that. The penalty that you and I earn because of our sin is death. But even though God is completely justified to give us wrath and judgment and punishment, God instead decides to give that to His Son. In my life group just this morning, we were talking about how people are trying to make God either angry and mean or loving and nice. It is not that God is either angry or just or loving and nice. In the cross, we see that God is both of those things. He is just as he punishes sin, but he is loving and merciful beyond anything we can comprehend because rather than giving that to us, Jesus takes our place. Some of us this morning may need to know and come to experience God's forgiveness and grace. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, our encouragement to you would be to repent and trust Jesus and Jesus alone forgiveness. But many of you here may already know Christ. I'm aware of that. And some of us today may need to be reminded that Jesus will finish the work that he started in us. You know, one of my great privileges is to be able to look out all over this room and see little balloons pop up all over your heads. Little text boxes that I think about when I look at you because I see your stories. I see the way when I look at Jack, the way he's loving his wife and serving her and the way they love each other and just the gift and the blessing that they are to us. I look over this room and I see David and Sheila sitting down here and I, I know their story and I know what God's brought them through. I look all over this room and I see all manner of stories of God's grace and His mercy and kindness in your life. And I want you to know, as I talk and look at you guys, and I know there may be some of you that are thinking, I just don't feel like Christ is finishing this work that He's starting in me. It feels like I'm just barely holding on just by a thread. I want to read something to you again. Sure of this, that Jesus who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Whether you're on the top of a mountain or in the lowest valley, if you know Jesus as your Savior, please understand the reason we know Jesus will see you through is because salvation is not just you and I reaching up to hold Jesus' hand. Salvation is Jesus reaching down to us and grasping us and holding us fast and never letting us go. 
no matter where you find yourself today, he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. In some seasons of life, the only thing that gets us through is the belief that Christ will hold us fast. I'm going to ask our praise team to come back up at this time. And I want us to actually do what this passage calls us to do today. I want us to be the gospel partnership that Paul calls us to be. One of the ways we exalt Christ as a body is by singing. And most of the time when we think about singing, we typically think about singing in terms of praising and worshiping God. And it is that. It is first and foremost a declaration of God's praise. But there's something else that happens when we sing. Singing is also a way of encouraging one another. Because when from all manner of differences in our lives, we lift our voices in the valleys and in the mountains, when we praise God together, believing that Christ will hold us fast, it warms and encourages our hearts. Because we remember that no matter where we're at in this life, we know Jesus, he will hold us fast. The song we're going to sing today as we close says that very thing. And when it says that Jesus will hold us fast, what it's talking about is that Jesus' grip on my life is not loose. It is firm and fast and strong. So no matter where you find yourself this day, if you know Jesus as your Savior, know and believe that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Would you please pray with me, church? Every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to create a space for us this morning to consider what God's word has said to us. Some of you today, you don't know this Jesus we're talking about. You're trusting your good works, you're trusting maybe church attendance or your baptism or some prayer you prayed when you were seven but it's made no real impact in your life. It's really never changed you. We want you to know that today you can experience the life-changing grace and mercy of Jesus who can begin a good work in you. If you don't know Christ today, in the space of time of reflection and singing and prayer, our prayer would be that you would repent, turn from your sin, and pray and trust that Jesus died for you. But others of you who know Christ may be struggling today to believe that Christ will hold you fast. I'm reminded of an interaction Jesus had with a man. Jesus told this man to believe, to not to fear. And the man said, I believe, Lord, but would you help my unbelief? if there are some of you here today that would say, I believe, Lord, that you will hold me fast, that you will see me through this dark season and storm that I'm in, but God, would you help my unbelief? 